Jonathan is out on vacation to Maine, visiting Chris's side of the family. So it's a blessing uh, for me to have the opportunity to preach and uh, be with you all today. So if you will, please keep Jonathan in your prayers and family in your prayers that the Lord would bless him with a good, restful time, enjoyable time together in Maine, uh, and also that the Lord would protect and keep him as they travel back later this week. Uh, so we are uh, thankful that he has this time away. Also thankful for, for Andy. Whenever we have staff meetings during the week, uh, Andy normally brings in uh, kind of the planned out order of worship. And the thing that, uh, just behind the scenes, the thing that often leads Andy and, and us as we are planning out our Sunday mornings, uh, in song at least, is not so much when the song was written, so either how new or how old, but rather what the song says. And so today we get marvelous reminders of these just glorious truths and songs, both new and old, and coming and celebrating God and who God is and what God has done for us. And that's exactly what we want to do together. So I was even reminded in singing through, uh, especially His Mercy is More, and then, well, all of the songs really, uh, we talked about uh, in Sunday school, we were working through Ephesians. It talks about how the Lord... Uh, lavishes upon his people grace and took the youth over to John chapter 1 verse 16 and how from the fullness of Jesus Christ we have all received grace upon grace or some footnotes in Bibles will translate that as grace replaced by grace. It's as if the Lord is telling us as people that through the person of Jesus Christ to us God gives us grace and then he gives us more. And then he takes that away and he gives us more. And he just continues to lavish upon us grace upon grace upon grace. And as I'm coming today and is just being reminded throughout the week of my own inadequacies and coming to teach God's word and, and even just very much so the coldness of my heart, the distractedness of my own heart at times with the things of this world, how good and gracious the Lord is to allow us to come to him coming empty-handed, because if we try to come with things in our hands to say, here, Lord, take me, take me on the basis of these things, we'll have no right to draw near to him, but rather to come empty-handed, recognizing that we come to God on the basis of what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, then we come and we celebrate God's infinite, matchless, measureless, marvelous grace. And that's what we get to do today, uh, especially now as we turn our attention to the word in Exodus chapter 11. Uh, as we read through Exodus 11, I would encourage you to read with your radar up and listen for how Exodus 11, much of what we see here, uh, it, you'll see echoes or you'll, you'll hear echoes of, of stuff that's gone on before. So either previously, kind of more immediately within the book of Exodus that we've already seen. And if you're listening carefully, and of course, all of you guys remember every sermon that Jonathan preached through Genesis. You'll remember even things that we heard through Genesis, and so we'll continue to see that. But also, the thing that we'll see in Exodus chapter 11 is how so much of what we see in 11 looks forward to what God is going to do more immediately in, an ex in Exodus and even going throughout the rest of Scripture, which we'll see today. In Exodus chapter 11, what's interesting is that we don't see events taking place but rather we see events remembered and events foretold that are about to take place. So for me, uh, just one funny aside is I pulled out the fir first commentary and study this week. First paragraph the commentator offers up. 
He says, Exodus 11 through 13 are one narrative chunk or piece. He didn't say chunk. I can't remember. I took it as chunk. They're one narrative chunk. They're better not split apart. And here I am, by Jonathan's assignment, taking just chapter 11. But it'll be a good chapter. So I say that to say, hopefully I won't step on his toes too much as he moves forward with the rest of Exodus. But if I do, it'll be okay. All right, so we want to see three things as we work through Exodus chapter 11. Three things the Lord is doing and say and is about to do very soon and will accomplish very soon in Exodus. So number one, the Lord will bring his people out. Number two, the Lord is going to plunder his enemy. And number three, he's going to accomplish all of this through the death of the firstborn. So in Exodus 11, we see that the Lord is finally going to bring his people out. He's going to plunder his enemy. And he's going to do and accomplish all of that through the death of the firstborn. All right, let's read Exodus 11, and then we'll pray. The Lord said to Moses, yet one, more plague, or yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Most holy God, we do thank you for the gracious gift of your word, that in your grace and mercy to us, you have delighted to cause your works to be remembered, to be written down, and to, to be preserved for our sake, that you, through your word, would reveal yourself to us, that we might come to know you. So we praise you for the gift of your word. And now as we read and study from it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work within our lives, accomplishing your good and perfect will, sanctifying your people in all the ways in which we need, according to your good will. And even we pray, Lord God, calling those who do not yet know you to come to know and taste and see how good your salvation is through Jesus Christ. So we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, number one, the Lord will bring his people out. 
So in verse 1 of Exodus 11, we see the Lord saying to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. The time has come. One plague more. Just one more plague. And after this plague, this plague, Pharaoh is going to drive the people out. But notice kind of the change of heart that Pharaoh has here. He's not just letting them go, kind of throwing his hands up, but rather what the text is really getting at is he is earnestly, eagerly driving, pushing the people out. He wants nothing to do with the presence of the Israelites in his land anymore. He wants them out. This is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who says in Exodus chapter 5, I don't know who this Yahweh is. I don't know his voice. I don't listen to his word. Who is he to me? This is Pharaoh who some scholars would point to that these plagues happened over a period of about eight months of time, who has seen all of these signs and wonders and experienced these plagues, yet continues to harden himself or is hardened by the Lord in judgment to refuse to do the will of the Lord and letting the people go. This is Pharaoh, a prideful, sinful self-exalting man, this would-be God of a man. And now, after this plague, is going to be leveled. And he will be eagerly, earnestly driving, pushing the Israelites out of the land. And we see that in doing so, in God about to do this act, in bringing his people out of the land, the God, that God is fulfilling his promises. So one of the, the, the just gracious things that uh, that to me that we experienced in our teaching through Exodus so far is what Jonathan was teaching and connecting, uh, I th- believe it was Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says that he is revealing himself to the people in a new way. And what Jonathan was teaching that week is he referenced back to Genesis chapter 17, where God reveals himself to Abraham or Abram at the time as a covenant-making God. He shows himself to be God Almighty who would make covenant with his people. And this new way in which God is revealing himself to his people is that he is a covenant-keeping God. It's as if to say what God says, God will do. God is fulfilling his promises to his people. That's what we see here in Exodus chapter 11. So remember back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God promises Abram, He says, I will give you this land, but before I give you this land, your offspring are going to be sojourners in a foreign land for over 400 years where they will be afflicted before they're brought back into this land. So you take into account that Abram at this point in time doesn't even have an offspring, so we still have Isaac, and then after that we have a time before even Jacob is born, and then before Jacob and his offspring head off to Egypt. So we're looking at a time frame of about 500 years. About 500 years. 500 years might as well be a million to my perspective, right? The, the Protestant Reformation just happened over 500 years ago. The pilgrims visited Plymouth Rock 400 years ago. America has been in existence for just a couple hundred years. God made promises to Abram around 500 years before he is now about to fulfill them. But what the Lord says, the Lord will do. 
Even more than that, the Lord has made more immediate promises to Moses and his people. So we go back to the beginning portions of Exodus where the Lord is first calling Moses and he's making promises to Moses about what he will do. And then Moses goes and shares those promises with the people. I will deliver you. I will do it, says the Lord. But does he do it overnight, instantaneously? He certainly could, right? But he doesn't. And so we're, we're waiting almost a whole other year at this point. The Israelites are waiting this time period for the Lord to fulfill his promises. But what does the Lord do? What the Lord says, he does. Whether God is saying to creation, let there be light and there is instantaneously light, or whether he is telling Abraham, I'm going to bring your people into this land and it takes over 500 years, what God says, God will do. There is no separation between what he says and his actions. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Do we believe that? What about in Romans chapter 8, when we read in that glorious chapter? It's a glorious chapter, but it's a chapter that lets us in on the fact that so much of our human existence is actually one that is filled with pain and suffering and groaning. Because we are living in a fallen and broken world that is awaiting redemption, that is awaiting to be made new, to be restored. And we ourselves, our bodies, are awaiting the day where we will no longer have this broken and fallen body, but will be glorified, will be like Jesus, our risen Savior. Well, God's promises come true to us. And we see in Revelation 21 that this new creation that the Lord will bring about is a new creation that will not have any more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more loss of memory, no more saying goodbye to loved ones, no more depressions, no more anxieties, no more insecurities, no more loneliness. But all things will be made new. So whether fast or whether slow, will the Lord bring about his promises? Will the Lord do what he has said that he will do? And scripture testifies time and time again that what the Lord says he does. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Well, what about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about how in this new covenant that we've come to enjoy how God will transform us in the beholding of Jesus, his son, in this lifetime from one degree of glory to another, sanctification. He's causing us to look more like Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, how the work that he began in us, he will bring to completion. So we look at our lives, right? And we see the promises that God is going to make us look like Jesus, his son. We will be righteous. We will be perfect. We will not struggle with sin. We will not battle with sin anymore. Will God fulfill his promises? Will God keep his promises to sanctify and perfect his people? Well, what about the gossip that continues to hinder us, continues to remain in our mouth? What about the lust that lurks in the shadows of our existence? What about the, the addictions that bring shame and cause us to squirm in our seats where we to be thinking about them? What about the guilt over sin that keeps us awake at night? 
and keeps us restless throughout the night. Will the Lord perfect his people? Will the Lord sanctify his people? Will the Lord, if we stop walking in darkness and walk in confession and seek to walk in the light, will he hear our pleas, hear our repentance, hear our asking for forgiveness, and will he heal? Will he keep his promises to heal, to forgive, and to sanctify and perfect his people? What Exodus 11 testifies is the fact, and what all Scripture testifies to, is that God is a covenant-keeping God. What he promises to do, he will do. No matter how defeated you feel by sin, God will, will perfect. He will heal. He will forgive. Do we trust those promises? The Lord fulfills his promises. God always delivers. I heard uh, Dane Ortland in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, put it in this way, and I'll steal the phrase. If God were to go back on his promises to glorify his people and sanctify his people, listen, if God were to neglect and forget and not keep his promises to his people, he would have to send Jesus back to the grave. He would have to find the works of Jesus the Son unacceptable. But praise the Lord, God the Father delighted to send the Son to save people like you and me. God the Father delighted in all the works of the Son that the Son accomplished. God the Father delights to bring us back to himself, and the Son delights to do the Father's will, which is to save sinners. So, all the promises of God that we have in Scripture find their yes and their amen in the person and work of Jesus. And is he a worthy, solid foundation? Of course he is. So God will bring his people out, and he will fulfill his promises. Not only will he bring his people out, but he will plunder his enemy in the process. Look in verses 2 and 3. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. We see that even this is a fulfillment to promises long ago and to more immediate promises. So in that Genesis 15 passage in verse 14, the Lord says that he's not going to bring Abraham's offspring out empty-handed, but rather they're going to come out with many rich and great possessions. And then we remember back more immediately to Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, where the Lord promises Moses that they are going to come out with silver and gold jewelry and clothing. The Lord is plundering his enemy and fulfilling his promise. So what we see here when we take these two things together is the Lord saves his people and he also gives the people exactly what they need. He doesn't save and deliver and just say, all right, go on your way, got you out. But rather he saves and delivers and gives them all they need. In Sunday school, we see echoes of this. We see this glorious, gloriously displayed for our benefit and for our blessing. 
in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul is praising God for the salvation that's found in God and in Jesus by the Spirit. It talks about how God the Father, in saving us, has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that purpose statement that we should walk holy and blameless before him. This is the promise that's to us that we see just like with the Israelites here in Exodus 11. God doesn't just save and then say, go on now and figure it out. Rather, God saves and he gives his people exactly what they need. So as we come to experience the Lord's salvation, God gives us every spiritual blessing that we need to walk holy and blameless before him. Do you find yourself ill-equipped for the journey of faith? If you look in the mirror, you better say yes, right? But God has given us everything we need in Jesus the Son by the power of the Spirit. Psalm chapter 23, one of the most famous psalms in all of Scripture. The Lord is our shepherd. In him we have no lack. What we see in the Lord's salvation and deliverance is the Lord gives his people all they need and anything that's withheld we must not really need he gives us all we need in verse 3 we see this stunning reversal we see how now Moses and the Israelites now have favor in the sight of the Egyptians they have favor amongst them these people who were once afflicting them and doing them great harm but now they have favor and because of this favor that the Lord has brought about the Egyptians will look on the Israelites and Israel will go out of the land with gold and silver and jewelry and clothing with all they need. So here's the question. Why do they need all this? Why not just ask for a little bit of food for the journey? Maybe some clothing if, if things wear out. Why do they need this gold and silver and jewelry? Well, we see, we see the reason why later on in Exodus, but before we see the reason why, we actually see Israel taking all of these good gifts that the Lord has given them and using it for sinful reasons. In Exodus chapter 32, we see what Israel does with these possessions that the Lord has given them. What do they make in, Israel, in Exodus chapter 32? The golden calf. The golden calf. They take all that the Lord has given them and they make an idol to bow down and worship. In Exodus chapter 35, we see what the Lord intended they do. What do they build in Exodus 35 and following? The tabernacle, where the Lord will make his glory, his presence known to his people so that his people can worship him and enjoy him, enjoy communion with the Lord. That is what the Lord intended. So God gives his people good gifts. God gives us, his people, good gifts. How do we respond? How do we use the good gifts that the Lord has given us? If the Lord blesses us with money, how do we use it? Do we see the car that that person has and we got to get it? The house, the decor, that those people have, that that family has, the clothes that those well-respected, well-dressed people have, I gotta, I gotta get that. What about the kids that the Lord has blessed us with, our children? As we shove them 
into every extracurricular we can, thinking that every activity that they have opportunity to do, to do will give them more happiness, make them more responsible, so that one day when they leave the nest and they fly away, they flutter strong. What about the resources we have? The emotional resources, the mental resources we have. What about the precious resource of time? Do we seek to use all that the Lord has given us mentally, emotionally, and with our time only in the ways that we want to and we don't give time or mental abilities or emotional abilities to the people who exhaust us and are just far too needy? We withhold our resources then? What do we do? So all of those things, money, resources, time, children, all of those things are actually good and precious gifts from the Lord, right? Everything that Israel walks out of, or walks out of uh, Egypt with, everything the Lord gives them is actually good. What matters is how they use the gifts that God gives them. And in Exodus chapter 35, they use the gifts as God has called them to. They build a tabernacle where the Lord will be glorified. So everything that the Lord has given you, how are you using it? Are you using it in a God-glorifying, God-exalting way? Or are you using it on yourself and the worship of self? Or are you using it to please the Lord? So God plunders his enemy to get something else. I want to draw your attention to one other thing. We not only see Israel taking the plunder out with them, but what we actually see is God plundering his enemy to take his treasured possession out. This is incredible. The Lord is plundering Pharaoh to take his people. His people are his treasured possession, to take them out. In Matthew chapter 12, we get this interesting interaction between Jesus and the religious elite. So Jesus' popularity is growing as he is announcing that God's rule and God's reign is coming. And people's lives are being healed and restored. They're brought out of darkness and into glorious light. And one of the more dramatic things that Jesus is doing as he's bringing God's rule and God's reign to bear in the world is he's casting demons out of people. People's lives are being spiritually restored. And so in, Gen or in Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders in their jealousy and their sinful hard-heartedness, they come and they say, well, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And then Jesus has this interesting statement in Matthew chapter 12. Flip over there in verse 29. Verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Pharaoh is the strong man that has Israel bound. And God has come to bind the strong man, to deliver and plunder his enemy and bring out his treasured possession, his people, for you and me. Jesus has come to bind the strong man. Satan has a grip and a hold on his people in their sinfulness, in their hard-heartedness. 
and Jesus has come to do the work of plundering his enemy. And we find deliverance as his treasured people there. In Ephesians chapter 4, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. We see Paul talk about just this. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says this, When he, that is Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Jesus came to plunder the strong man and defeat him and bring him to open shame by conquering him. And in doing so, when Jesus ascends to the throne victorious as the ruler and as the king over all things, he does so leading out a host of captives. This greater new exodus that's taken place. We are the captives that are led out of sin and out of death. And we are led into glorious freedom. But not only that, notice what Jesus is doing as he's leading out these captives. He's doing just what he does in Exodus chapter 11. He gave gifts to men. When you read through the rest of Ephesians chapter 4, you see that all the gifts that Jesus gives to his people are gifts that are used to build the church, to build his house where he is going to make his glory and goodness known. In Exodus 11, the people are led out with great possessions. And what's the Lord concerned with doing? Building his house where his glory will be known, where his people can come to him. In the works of Jesus as he leads out a host of captives and, give, give, and gives gifts to his men, to his people, to his church, what's he concerned with doing? Building his house where his glory will be made known, where more people can come to know him. As if you need more reason for confidence, I want to show you one more. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we see what the Lord does with his house that he has built. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is a very familiar verse to us, but one that I have always read wrong. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've always read that verse as you have the church over here, and all of hell is just attacking it, all sin and evil are constantly attacking and bombarding the church. But guess what? The church can't be conquered. But that's actually not what Matthew 16, 18 says. What are gates used for? To keep people out, right? Whose gates are we talking about in Matthew 16, 18? The gates of hell shall not prevail against what? The church. God is still in the plundering business. And who does he do it through? The church, through gospel proclamation. God is plundering his enemy today and leading out captives. Church, I confess, I fail to believe that as I ought to. But God still delights to save enemies, or people who were once his enemies, and make them his own. God is still in the plundering business and leading out sinners to come into his family, to be his treasured possession. 
And we, as the church, are called to go out with boldness, not produced in ourselves, but by the Holy Spirit, with the gospel proclamation by which God delights to save. Do we believe it? Even in our feeble attempts to share the gospel, as we stumble over our words and can barely work up the courage to tell people of Jesus, God is destroying and shaming his enemies through the gospel message that we proclaim. Do we believe that God is still in the plundering business? I hope so. Exodus 11 in the New Testament testify to it. So we see that God is bringing his people out. In the process, he is plundering his enemy to build his house where his glory will be made known. And he does and accomplishes all of this through the death of the firstborn, which we see in verses 4 and following. This night, the Lord will go out, and the firstborn in all the land of Egypt will be put to death. And it's this plague, it's this sign and wonder that will level Pharaoh. One of the things that we see here is all Egypt is now in favor of Moses and the Israelites. And what we have is God propping Pharaoh up and hardening his heart for judgment, showing what he does to his enemy who would stand in rebellion against him. And Pharaoh hears this, and he sees the death and the destruction that's coming, and he would rather stand as he would in his rebellion and refusal to accept what the Lord is saying than bend the knee to the Lord. And because of that, death to all the firstborn in Egypt will come. But notice the language that's used here describing this event, which we'll talk about in just a few chapters. Okay, we're not there yet. In Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 3, there is a great cry that goes out through all the land that reaches the heavens. It's the Israelites crying in their affliction to the Lord. And the Lord hears. And the Lord sees. And the Lord knows what he will do. This night that the Lord brings judgment upon Egypt, amongst the people of Israel, silence. No more crying out. Israel will be safe. And what we'll see in a few chapters is Israel will be worshiping their Lord. As that's happening, though, because of the judgment that's brought upon Egypt, there will go a great cry throughout the land, the likes of which Egypt has never experienced because of the death of the firstborn. And it's in this plague that Pharaoh will now eagerly, earnestly drive and push the people out of Egypt. We see that even as Moses tells Pharaoh of what's going to happen and Pharaoh will not listen, Moses goes out in verse 8 in hot anger. And, and most commentators have said that, that what Moses is angry about is seeing Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to accept what the Lord would say to him. And because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart, now Egypt is going to suffer. Now Egypt is going to experience this judgment. Don't we see this in loved ones and friends and family who for no reason that we can think or guess see the glorious offer that's made to them in Jesus Christ and they refuse? We think, why? 
just how hard and difficult that is. The fact remains, though, that what Pharaoh is experiencing and the rebellion that he's living in is us, apart from the Lord. The New Testament levels the charge against us in Romans 1 and Romans 3 and many other passages, but we'll stick with those two. In Romans chapter 1, we see that the way of all humanity, all humanity, is that we have neglected the worship of the Creator God and chosen rather to worship created things. That's what we choose. And in Romans chapter 3, we see that everyone Everyone has gone astray. There is no one who does good, no one who is righteous. No one seeks after God. No one wants the Lord and his ruling and his reigning and his authority over them. And so what we see of Pharaoh here is us, apart from the Lord's work on our hearts. Apart from the Lord in his grace and in his mercy, While we would go far from him, him condescending and coming near to us to take our sin upon himself. The deliverance that we come to experience out of Egypt, out of slavery that we experience in the the plundering of the enemy where we are led into all of God's good and gracious gifts, it happens through the death of the firstborn Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Jesus on the cross, the true firstborn son of God, from noon till three, experiences darkness. Experiences darkness forsakenness from God. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46 and 50, we see this happening. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. In verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. In the darkness, Jesus, the true firstborn Son of God, who would come to deliver and to save and to bring redemption through his blood, he himself cries out in the darkness as the true firstborn Son of God who deserved all the blessings of the Father. Yet he takes upon himself the cry that we deserve to cry. He takes upon himself the death that we deserve to die. He takes upon himself the judgment that we deserve, that we earn. He takes upon himself the sentence of condemnation so that we, as God's people, can gloriously say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has cried out so that we don't have to because he has faced the judgment that we deserve. God delivers, God plunders, And he does all of this through the death of the firstborn. How do we respond? How do we respond to his promises that we see in Scripture, even though our lives feel like lives that are lived in total and complete suffering and waiting 
and darkness and tears and crying and isolation, how do we respond to seeing his promises in Scripture? Will we trust the Lord to be a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God? Will we trust the Lord to give us all we need to live a life that is holy and blameless before him? Or do we think that the Lord just gives sparingly? Or that the Lord must be tired of us after all our screw-ups and all our failures? Or do we believe that when God promises to glorify and sanctify his people, he will do so? And all of our feeble attempts to go and glorify the Lord in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and we feel weak and inadequate, do we believe that the Lord is still in the plundering business and taking captives out of sin and into his glorious light? Do we believe that the Lord will be faithful to do that? And do we trust in the saving and atoning work that's found in Jesus Christ, the true firstborn? Or do we try to come to the Lord saying, Lord, accept me. Accept me on the basis of what I've done and how good I am. Or do we come empty-handed, recognizing that all we need is provided for in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he's still doing through his people today? Will we trust in him? Let's pray, and then we'll respond in song. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you deliver. Lord God, even while we were slaves to sin, we wanted nothing to do with you, and there was found to be none who are righteous. But we thank you that even though we were far off, that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, you came near to us through the person of Jesus, your Son. We thank you, Lord God, that you delight to save, to take rebels, to take captives, and make them your sons and your daughters. Would you give us grace to believe in that, to live in awe and wonder and praise to you and your glorious grace for that wonderful truth. Would you give us grace to trust in your promises, knowing that you are not just a covenant-making God, but whatever you say, you do. And while we might not experience the fulfillment of those promises quickly or even in this lifetime, you keep your word. And that is guaranteed to us through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Would you give us grace to be bold in our witness and testimony of Jesus Christ and in gospel proclamation. Would you give us grace to believe your words that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church as the church goes out on the offense with the sword of your word in our hands proclaiming Jesus, the gospel, the good news to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Would you give us grace to trust in your work in saving and redeeming through the death of Jesus? Give us grace to see him glorified and exalted. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Would you sing it out? Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. Our sins they are many. His mercy is more, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. Amen. And we close with a word from the Lord in Romans chapter 15, verses 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You're dismissed.